0: Hello, everyone. This is Jeff from Irenacast And before we get into this week's amazing episode with Megan Devine, I just want to throw out there one more time that our street team meeting is happening on Sunday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And basically what we're doing is we're opening up a space for people to be involved in some of the behind the scenes stuff going on here at Irenacast a focus group of sorts. Uh, and if you're interested in any of that, please email me at podcast at irenacast.com And I will give you all the details and the link for our live gathering on Sunday at 4 p.m. All that information is in the show notes. And speaking of the show notes, for everything mentioned in the episode that you're about to hear, you can go to the show notes at Iranicast.com slash 151 and get all the relevant links and everything you need to find out more about Megan's work and then also find all the ways that you can like, follow, and subscribe to Iranicast itself. So, without fur- any further ado, here is Rajiv sitting down with... Megan Devine.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to our This is Regime. On the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. Thank you for joining another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imaginations. This week, I have the privilege of talking with Megan Devine, and after the conversation is over, we're going to play over-under, so stay tuned for that. It should be a lot of fun. Megan's website is refugeandgrief.com, and the first sentence on the About page says Volumes. Here it is. I'm Megan, a psychotherapist, writer, grief advocate, and communication expert dedicated to helping you live through things you never thought you'd face. Wow. Welcome. Welcome, Megan.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: You are someone who's sought after by lots of people because you talk about a topic, grief, that most of us run from mm. and avoid even when we're in the midst of it. And so for my first question is really stealing a question from your about page again, how'd you get into this?
2: It, it's a, it's a big question. So, and first I want to, I want to touch on, like you, you said, I'm, I'm sought after for something that people don't want to talk about. What's, what's interesting is if you ask the average person, do you want to talk about grief and the people you love dying and all of these things And people are like, ah, no, I don't want to talk about that. But if you just open the conversation, um, start talking about how hard it is to be here sometimes, how difficult it is losing people we love or losing things that we love. Everybody wants to talk about it. So there's, there's this sort of weird thing where we say, I don't want to talk about grief, but please, can we talk about grief? I got into this work. I've been a, um, a psychotherapist for a really long time, almost 20 years now. And back in 2009, I was, I was a therapist. I was in private practice and I was getting tired. I was getting sort of burned out from sitting inside in a chair and listening day after day after day, and with my partner, I was talking about like how can we rework things so that I can take a break and step back and, and listen for what's next for me? Um, I knew that I was doing good work, but it wasn't it wasn't feeding me anymore. And so Matt and I decided that we were going to change things and I was going to close the practice and he was going to take over financial support for our family so that I could wonder about what was next. And before we got a chance to do that, Matt died in an accident. And I mean, everything exploded. I was a person who had never shied away from the hard things in life, had never, um, I mean, winced, yes, but turned away, no, Mm. from difficulty and challenge, both in my own life and in the lives of my clients and my friends. Um, I was used to that hard territory, but Matt's death was orders of magnitude different. Watching someone you love disappear in an instant is bizarre and it, and it tears down the known world. And the, the landscape that I discovered in those days and weeks and months after he died was also unlike anything that I'd ever experienced before. The, the support in air quotes, um, the support that I received was bizarre, sometimes intentionally cruel, often unintentionally cruel, but, you know, hearing from people, you know, Oh, you, you must've really needed to learn this lesson about letting go of things. Who says that right. after your person dies? Right. You know, people saying, well, everything happens for a reason, or the two of you signed up for this so that you could um, bring something beautiful to the world. Like, what the hell is that? Right. The, the things that, um, that we say to people when we're faced with somebody's pain, especially pain that you like, you look at and you're so stunned by it. So shaken by it that you don't know what to do, so you you kind of do what you're taught, which is to jump in with platitudes or making somebody feel better. And um, you know, for those first few years after Matt died, I signed off of humans. I was like, I volunteered on farms, I fed people because that was the one way that I could be of service without having to talk to anybody. I stepped away from human interaction because it was it was too hard. And I swore that I was never going to do clinical work again. To live through this kind of experience and think about going back and listening to sort of day-to-day typical normal struggles, that was just um, a dissonance that I couldn't handle. What I found, though, was it was so difficult to be a grieving person in the world and to hear what passed for support and know how much needless suffering is dumped on people who are already struggling. I have what I would call an overdeveloped sense of responsibility for the world. And I knew that I could do something to change things, not just for me, but for you know grieving people everywhere. Uh, I could make things better. If I could talk about what's really wrong with the way that we come to grief in this culture, in our communities, in our personal lives, if I could do something to make that better, what else would I do? Mm-hmm. Right. Sometimes people will say like, you know, Do you ever feel like there's other work that you could be doing? I'm like, what the fuck else would I do? (laughs) Right. Right? Like, um, no. You know, you and I started out um, before we started recording here talking about like grief and loss happens for everybody. And it's not just when your person dies, but it's also witnessing suffering in the world. We're hearing so much more suffering these days. You know, what's happening with immigration, what's happening in the trans community, what's happening with communities of color. We hear so much more pain then we're accustomed to hearing. And we just don't have the capacity to respond to it with any skill, not when it happens in our own lives and not when it happens in the wider world. So that is my very long-winded answer to why I do the work that I do and what the work is, right? Oh. Talking about how we pay attention to what hurts, wherever that shows up.
1: Thank you for, for sharing the journey towards this work. So much of what drives us in what I would call helping professions are usually deeply personal stories. Um, our culture in the United States, we have a pretty awful relationship with grief. Can you just talk a little bit about things that you observe, you encounter that you would say fall into that really awful category? One of the things that you did already mention that is one that I almost always in my head at least respond with, Fuck you. Mm -hmm. Is everything happens for a reason? Yeah. So that would be near the top of my list for what I've observed is just really messed up in relationship with grief.
2: Yeah, I mean the the library of terrible things that we say to people who are hurting is is vast, and you know, again, sometimes it's intentional. Most of the time, it's not. It's just poorly skilled. The sort of long arc of grief illiteracy is long. I mean, this Mm -hmm. isn't something that modern Western culture has created. Um, One of the things that I do in my book is I talk about like that long, the long reach of grief avoidance. right? Like it goes back a really, really long way. Big emotions are scary. Big emotions threaten to overturn relationships, um, communities, whole cultures, all of these things. Like there's gotta be a reason why grief is so taboo why being sad is so intolerable for people around us and for the community and the culture at large. We don't demonize something that isn't terrifying. So you look at all of the ways that we have tried to shush grief. Everything happens for a reason. Uh, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. At least you have two other kids What did you do to cause this, right? Victim blaming is really pervasive in the grief world related to death, but also in the cancer community, in the chronic illness community, right? like That person shouldn't have been uh, crossing the street right there. They should have waited for the light. Okay, well, right, all of these things that we do to sort of otherize and distance from somebody else's pain because it it makes it safer for us to be here. So there are lots of ways that grief avoidance shows up But even things that, that don't seem nefarious on the surface, right? Like trying to cheer somebody up when they're sad, we cheer people up. Like it's our job, right? right? We can't Mm -hmm. let somebody whose baby just died be sad. That's fucked up, right? We step in and we're like, at least, you know, you can have a baby. You can try again. You're young. You can have more. At least you have two great kids already. We think that we're doing somebody a service by cheering them up. And what we're doing is we're dismissing and erasing their pain. We're telling them that it's not okay to be sad when your baby died. We're telling them it's not okay to be sad when your sister died of cancer at 27. And again, I mean, we're not, for the most part, mean, terrible people. We're doing what we think is correct. We're doing what we've been taught. We're doing what all of the movies tell us we're supposed to do, which is, Give your friends a good rah-rah cheerleading and make them happy again. And the sun will come out and there'll be rainbows and they'll be playing. And like, that it's wrong. And one of the things that I talk about a lot is um, what I call epidemics of unspoken grief. We look at things like rising suicide, al- suicide numbers, increased social isolation, which we hear about a lot these days, interpersonal violence, which is nothing new, certainly, especially for certain communities, but we're hearing about it a lot more the thing at the root of all of those different facets of human suffering is grief. And what that says to me is the way that we've dealt with grief, even just for the last 50 years, is not working for us. Trying to put the past behind you, Mm -hmm. medicating natural, normal, healthy grief and sadness, telling people to cheer up and move on, that it's not that bad, that they're still young, all of that stuff is not working. All of that stuff, is creating a culture with rampant suicide epidemics, with rampant depression and anxiety and social isolation. It's created environments where we can look at the woman grieving the loss of her young son who was shot in his backyard holding a cell phone and not recognize that person's pain, but instead go into political debates. All of our efforts to suppress and erase grief has created the culture we have now. It's not working.
1: Yeah, that's really powerful. And that last, that last example that you cited, Stephen Clark, who was shot in his grandmother's backyard happened here in Sacramento. And, um, my wife and I were actively involved with the, I guess the allyship with the family in seeking uh-huh. justice and holding law enforcement accountable. Uh-huh. And we've been in close proximity to the family uh-huh. when they've spoken and embraced us. And, you know, it's true. While we, you know, I'm just thinking about my own heart and mind in those moments, you're there, you're beholding the sadness. So it's palpable. You have to, you're forced to acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. But outside of being in in physical proximity to the mom and brother and cousins, I jump straight to the like, how do we fix this? How do we keep this from happening again? How do we bring the family justice?
2: Yeah. And those are super complex issues. I think what's important, at least from my perspective, is to be jumping in there and doing the work, doing the allyship, and making change happen as also a way to protect the grief of those families. I think that the work is so important and speaking out about it is so important, especially yeah. for, you know, those of us in the white community being good allies and showing up and, and those sorts of things. And of course, in other communities, um, as a, you know, non-white person yourself, like that work is so powerful and so important. And mm-hmm. for me, other people have their own reasons here, but for me, it's like, I want for all grieving people to have a bubble around them where they just Mm. get to be sad, where they Mm -hmm. just get to be angry, where they just get to fall apart. Because the rest of us all around them are so skilled at the work that we do that we can pick up the fight until or unless they're ready to. Um, I don't mind that we jump into fixing the system that creates violence. Mm -hmm. The system that creates so much more grief and loss. Mm. I don't mind that we jump in to fix that. What I mind is when we jump in to fix grief. If you look at the the survivors of the Parkland shooting, you look at those kids out there on social media and the shit they got, no matter what they did in those first days, right? right? Like here's a picture of them coming together. How can they be eating pizza when their friends are dead? You look at them organizing and using their voices and being pissed. How dare they be so angry? They're not grieving correctly. I actually saw therapists chime in on social media to say, these kids should not be allowed to bring their anger into social media. They need to be grieving. They need to be like protected and sad. I'm like, who the f are you to dictate how they're grieving? Anger is Mm -hmm. part of grief. Mm -hmm. Outrage is part of grief, right? So when we're when we're talking about grief and social justice, we can't divorce the wider cultural picture, the politics,
3: mm-hmm. from
2: the personal expression of grief. I think where it gets tricky is we feel that intense, immense grief, and it's hard. So we jump immediately to politics. We jump immediately to battle. We jump immediately to judging people's public expression of grief. All of that is the wrong approach. None of these issues are simple. I try to bring in these wider cultural social justice issues into every discussion about grief because I feel like they're left out in the cold a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think it also helps to just widen that lens and look at the fact that grief is everywhere. And it's not just like I lost my grandmother or my brother uh, died in a workplace accident, but it's also grief in the world and how important it is to open these discussions so that we can respond. So that we can respond with skill, so that we can choose what is my best response right now? Is Mm -hmm. my best response to um, do what I can, like contribute to a GoFundMe campaign so that this family doesn't have to worry about going to work this week or this month so that they can tend to the fact that their kid just got killed? Or am I gonna do advocacy work over here? Or am I honestly gonna look to my own personal community and look at the ways that I am complicit in the culture that creates so much violence? Mm -hmm. Am I going to um, look at the ways I talk to my partner or my kids Mm -hmm. and talk about how hard it is to be human, how much it hurts that this world is full of so much pain and suffering? What is my response going to be? And for me, all of that stuff cooks back to how do we talk about pain? It's never that there's one right way to respond to personal loss, to community loss, to cultural loss. What I really want is for people to be paying attention to how they respond interrupting their habitual responses and asking the questions that you were just talking about that you and your family did, it sounds like, so skillfully in response to that death. That skill around, here's what I know how to do. Is this a useful offer Mm -hmm. at this time for Mm -hmm. this person, this family, this community? And what else might I do to contribute to a world where, one, this doesn't happen, doesn't happen as often, doesn't happen at all, And how can I contribute to a world where we can talk about this, where we can talk about how hard it is to be human, how complex and twisted this world can be, and how beautiful this world can be,
3: right? Right.
2: I work with a lot of people whose lives have gone sideways in really strange ways. Like I talk about the statistical anomalies. So accidents and violent crimes and baby loss and suicides Mm. and natural disasters, like those are my people. I spend most of my time Talking with, to, and for people whose lives have dissolved for atypical or um, un- in-, in uncommon ways, wow. really. And, you know, this is the thing no matter what kind of loss it is, what people remember is how cared for they felt, how dismissed or judged they felt. You can't erase the grief itself, no matter what kind of loss we're talking about. You mm-hmm. can't erase the grief itself. What you can do. Is come up underneath and around that loss, and offer support so that the the identified grieving person or the identified family can be however and whoever they need to be at that time. It's it's mm-hmm. a it's like I feel like it's such a big tangled ball of conversation here. Like we start talking about um, cultural responses to grief, we start talking about um, how we respond to grief in our own lives. What are the worst things that you hear? Where's the evidence of this happening? And like in two seconds, we're into racial violence. It is all the same story, mm. right? You pull one thread and the whole thing falls apart. This is why I also often say like, um, discussions about grief don't just belong in end of life discussions. They don't just belong, you know, at the right. end of a normal Western lifespan. Right? They, they don't just belong in those places. They belong everywhere.
1: Absolutely so we, in our in our pre-recording conversation i, I mentioned uh, one of my professors in grad school herbert anderson who pretty much devoted his life to dealing with grief and writing about it teaching about it and just offered a lot of great wisdom he he said he wanted to produce a bumper sticker and i'm going to tell you what he wanted on the bumper sticker and then i i want to hear your response hey he said the bumper sticker should say or would say A family who grieves together, stays together.
2: I think that's awesome.
1: Yeah, I thought so too.
2: I think that's awesome. And I, (laughs) (laughs) such a contrarian all the time. Um, I think that's a great message. And I also think it's accurate, right? If you stick by each other, no Mm -hmm. matter what happens in your life, that's awesome. The best indicator of survival inside loss of any kind is how well companioned somebody feels. Right. There's such a sense of isolation, right? And, and I like, I talk about the difference between pain and suffering, right? Pain for me is um, just that the purity of loss, right? The purity of grief. It just sucks. It's hard. Suffering is what happens when you don't eat enough, you don't sleep enough, you don't have people around me, you don't have community. All of these things sort of make things worse. The family that grieves together stays together when you can experience your emotional relational world together and feel companioned and supported inside it i think those are the best votes for survival those are the things that sort of protect us in some ways against uh, suicidality drug addiction Mm -hmm. social isolation depression anxiety lingering effects of emotions that never have a place to go or never get heard relationships are what help us with that yes the reason I'm like, mm, a little asterisk on that <laughs> is that because we have such a faulty cultural idea of what it means to grieve, I think that you could say, you know, the family that grieves together stays together and then everybody has to grieve the way Papa does right? Sure. in order to sure. do this correctly. Yeah. Or you get yeah. four weeks to be sad as a family on this camping trip oh, and then you right. get your together sure. and move on, right? Yeah. So yes, with an asterisk.
1: Right, and I guess the asterisk was the rest of the class.
2: <laughs> <That's> right, <laughs> the right, right. Was, like, <laughs> and we're gonna boil this down. We one thing, it. Right, <laughs> right, like we we need our we need our sound like uh you know the one of my common things on social media is a uh, show up, listen, don't fix. Right, yeah. like we like to boil things yeah. down, sound bites because they're useful, they're actionable, Absolutely. they're good reminders, they're good thought provoking snippets.
1: They they give us something to hold on to.
2: Yeah, in, in the moment and I love of crisis. That yeah. And I I love that reminder that we are all in this together Mm -hmm. and it's hard here.
1: So that notion of having something to hold on to in times of crisis is a great segue to this next question, which is I've heard it said by some sources that I would consider very credible that say religious people, devoutly religious people. Uh, navigate their grief better than non-religious people. Do you find that this is the case?
2: i got to tell you that most of the messages and the comments that I get through various channels is that religious communities are some of the most poorly skilled people in responding to grief in their communities. Now, before everybody freaks out, here's why. There is so much religious language, and I'm not just talking about Christian traditions, but across a lot of different traditions, where sadness is just not allowed. If you have faith, especially faith in some sort of afterlife, then you shouldn't really be sad because your dad is in heaven. You're going to see them again. God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Put your faith in Jesus just to go Christian for a second, and, um, and everything will be okay. It's that same, don't feel what you feel everything is fine get over it and move on language dressed up in holy robes right it's so pervasive in religious communities yeah. so pervasive that many people leave their faith yeah which is really unfortunate because yeah. for me for me the the true use of faith any kind of faith i don't even care what people believe in um as long as it brings meaning and depth and and connection in their lives, I don't care what God you pray to, sure uh, th- for me the the real glory in faith is its ability and capacity to companion people no matter what comes. That is different than taking away somebody's pain. Spiritual right. bypassing is a really f- big deal, yeah, right, and spiritual bypassing is when we use. Spiritual buzzwords, uh, spiritual messages, spiritual conditioning to say, don't feel what you feel because it's not as bad as you think. And that happens in traditional, what we understand as traditional religious communities. And it happens in things like the yoga community, what we mm. used to call the New Age community. In the right. spiritual community, it yep. is freaking rampant yep. in Western Buddhism, right? right? All right. of these things that say like, you know, um, Buddha says not to be attached to things yeah. and then you will have no suffering, right? Right. No, he didn't. Right. right. Like, don't, don't twist the historical Buddha like that. Right. Like mm-hmm. from my understanding, having dabbled and I will say dabbled, I am by no means a Buddhist scholar or practitioner or any of these things. But like, from my understanding, the Buddha came out of his family induced seclusion protection, went out into the world and saw how much pain there is and went, Fuck, there is so much pain in this world. How am I going to be here? and keep my eyes open to the pain and suffering of the world, and not lose my mind. Never did the Buddha say, I'm going to look at other people's pain and tell them to rise above it. Those practices, and we, again, we can open this back up again to any, any faith tradition, any practice, the point of that practice, the point of the community Let's just stick with practice for a second. The point of the practice is not to make everything be sunny and rosy and not hurt. It's meant to help you survive the times that really hurt. And as spiritual community, we're meant to stand by those broken places. We're meant to sit alongside the crater. I mean, it it gets me every time I talk about this, when I think about what happens in faith communities when we miss our mission. Right, your mission is not to cheer somebody up. It's not to remember that their kingdom is later. It's not to remind right. them that God told yeah. them not to grieve. It is to sit there in that broken place and keep your eyes open. Tolerate that pain. That is what your practice trains you for. I completely lose my emotional mind when I talk about that stuff.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I,
1: I do too. One One of the traps of conservative religion, like I grew up in, are the platitudes without anything to back it up you know that's why i ended up leaving is there were no answers to the question why like how did you come to this what does that mean like mm-hmm. well it just mean it, it that's just it that's
2: right it's so reductive right it means what it means
3: yeah yeah
1: and
2: if it, you question it or you ask for depth or you ask for nuance or context then then your faith is in question right and this is exactly. like this is part of i'm going to use this phrase conservative agenda and i i'm careful with that phrase because that can, that can get twisted and mean a lot of different things. But when I, what I mean when I'm talking about that is sort of the reductive nature of religious community, right? Where we where doubt is not allowed where questions are not allowed, right? Where you are just supposed to take the soundbite, the bumper Mm -hmm. sticker, the passage thrown out to you as the answer to all of your questions. And you know, it doesn't work. And and again, like you go back to the roots of any tradition and there's always doubt in the founders.
1: Well, and, and the real danger of that not working is adherence to those community in those communities.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: know they're not working, but think it's their flaw. Yes. That it's not working.
2: Yeah. If there is this-
1: the wherewithal in many cases for yeah. them to point the finger where it belongs, which is at the institutional Absolutely. high control dogma and say, that's Up.
2: That's right.
1: What I'm going through is real.
2: I mean, what faith that takes to be able to go, wait a minute, this isn't me, this is them, to be able to walk away from something that is scary to walk away from for a lot of different reasons. And,
1: And that's why I'm a huge follower of your work, why I share a ton of your stuff on social media, because I am still connected to many people from. Um, my conservative world, people that I love dearly, mm-hmm. and in this work on the podcast we're we 're kind of an ex evangelical unfundamentalist uh space um and so a lot of us are unpacking you know it 's a life yeah. it 's a lifetime of unpacking, yeah and, and you help us be connected. you're one of those voices that says you know that pain is okay mm-hmm. it 's not supposed to go away you know it might it might evolve over time, but it 's there,
2: yeah, exactly. Yeah. I will say this as we're talking about religion. So I was raised agnostic. I often say that I was raised in a vacuum
3: Mm.
2: around spirituality and religion. Both my mom and my dad came from very conservative backgrounds, one Protestant and one Catholic, and were so wounded Mm. by those traditions and Mm. by the ways that the message got bastardized and weaponized within their own families that they felt it was better to not mention spirituality or religion at all. I talked to my dad about this, um, you know, when I was in my twenties. I was like, "Why that choice?" And he said, "You know, your mom and I just saw such the, such a, a bad side mm. of religion and the damage that it does, and we didn't want to color your opinion at all. We figured you sure. would find your way into your own meaning, and which I think is beautiful. And also, like, you could have said something. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that would have been cool. But you know, I there is so much beauty inside almost all of our traditions." And I, I spent a lot of my 20s um, uh, studying different traditions and mythology and religion. Like I am such a dork about comparative religion. And at their root, I feel like all traditions are just so beautiful and so powerful in the ways that they talk about the more than this, the more than what we see, that right. magic that connects and guides everything. I love that. Yeah. And it pains me to see how much it's twisted. It pains me that we have to remove ourselves from the mixed bag of religion that we grow up in because as you said, like there's still beauty there. Right. There's still beauty in the in the conservative fundamentalist church. It is sure. still there. It's just buried. Yeah. And it, it pains me to see people struggling to fit their grief, their life experience into um, a rigid system that does not serve them, but they, they, as you said, they think it's their fault that they don't fit in it. And I love that people are starting to look back at those systems and say, it's not us, it's you. If there is yeah. no room for grief in your church, there is no room for love in your church. Right. And we can also see this in the way that um, various religions and spiritual communities respond to the pain of the world. Do you respond with victim blaming and fear-based responses and scarcity? And it's okay for us to take care of our own. And we all want safe places for people. And we all want our homes and our neighborhoods to thrive. But you, no, yours, yours can't. Because if yours thrives, if we pay attention to your pain, there is not enough for us. Right. Right.
1: So in my work as a as a minister and spiritual leader in certain contexts, you get called into family tragedy, moments that mm-hmm. are intensely private. So I go back to this one story and I, I, I want to hear your reaction. I, and, and this story is one that I, I center myself with before either taking a phone call, making a phone call, doing a visit. And I will use it oftentimes in my, my meditation. So there's a mom who's at the kitchen window. She's, she's at the sink doing dishes. And her, her son plays out front all the time. And they have a neighbor, an elderly uh, neighbor couple, who um, have a beautiful front porch. And he goes and sits there and talks to them. The, the mom of the elderly couple recently passed away. So she sees her son starting to play. And the elderly neighbor man is sitting on his porch in the rocking chair, pretty still, just still. And she sees her son stop playing. He goes over there, crawls, no words are exchanged, crawls into the man's lap and just kind of puts his head in his chest and stays there for what seems like forever. And the mom's like, what is going on? What's happening? And then after what, again, feels like a real an inordinately long time to the mom, the boy climbs down, no words are said, and walks in the kitchen um washes up and is ready for his snack. And so she says to her son, I, I saw you over there with, with um Mr. Brown. What were you doing? And he just calmly says as he's eating his snack, I just sat with him and helped him cry.
2: Yeah. You just stay. Yeah. Right. And, and
1: so often we get locked into finding the right words.
2: We think there's something to do. There isn't anything to do. You just stay. For what seems like an inordinately long time.
1: Exactly, I love that story.
2: Yeah, that's a great story. Thank you for sharing it with yeah,
1: me. You're welcome. So, Megan, tell us a little bit more about the work that you offer, the supports that are available, how our listeners can find you.
2: So, um, Refuge in Grief is the website. There is um, there's a great animation on the on the landing page of the website that you know maybe you've already seen it. It's a great little animation on how to help a grieving friend. So if you're not really sure what to do, that's a great place to start and share that around. That little video has had, uh, last time I checked, was over 28 million views. Wow. Which is so cool because as, a, as an educator, what I can see when people share that, when I kind of look at it from you know, our sneaky ways to see how people <laughs> are sharing it, what I see happening is people sharing it to, let's say, a friend's timeline and saying, I watched this video and I learned that what I've been doing is the wrong thing. I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. Here's what I'm going to do better to support you, mm-hmm. you know, after your sister died. right? Uh, it's a really cool tool. So if you're, if you're not sure what you should be doing, that's a great place to start. And if you want to start, you know, being part of the grief revolution and advocating for how to show up for each other better, um, how to be that person who walks over and puts your head on somebody's chest and just hangs out with them while they're sad spread that video around because that's a really cool thing to do. You can find me on social media. Instagram is my current favorite at Refuge in Grief, also on Facebook at Refuge in Grief. And the Writing Your Grief course is kind of one of the coolest things that I've made for people. It's been running for about six years now. It's a 30-day writing space, writing community for people grieving any kind of loss to come in and tell the truth about what it's like to be them. It's unlike any other grief space I've ever seen for most people, they come into that space. And within the first couple of days, they say, this is the first place I've been allowed to tell the truth. There is something about being allowed to tell the truth yes, without judgment, without advice. Oh my gosh, the rampant advice giving we give, we do in this culture. It's a really powerful place. I I talk about it like my acknowledgement laboratory. What happens when we listen to somebody's pain and don't try to fix it? I've been studying that for six years. I can tell you what happens we create communities that are beautiful to each other,
3: mm. that
2: are ferocious advocates
3: mm.
2: for each other. That's the sort of stuff that happens within the writing course. So um, if you are looking for a place where you can tell the truth about how hard it is to be here, how hard it is to lose um, the people you love and the things you love, it's a it's a really magical place. And all of the information about that is on the website. And a new group opens um, roughly every month. We take a couple of months off during the year, but but you can okay. always find information about that on the website, and then of course the book. It's okay that you're not okay, meeting grief and mm-hmm. loss in a culture that doesn't understand is mm-hmm. available everywhere in English, Spanish, German, and Chinese.
1: Wow, that's yeah, so, cool. so great, so cool. And we'll we'll have all those links So those of you listening. We'll have all those links on the show notes, so you don't have to take notes while you're driving. Please don't. Do
2: that. <laughs> Please don't do that. No, no. Um, Safety first. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you, Megan. Don't go away. Cause we're going to play a game in a minute here, but on the other side of the music, we will play over under. Okay. And we're back ready to play over under with Megan divine. Fabulous, fabulous guest. Um, The way this works is we each have three things that we're going to throw out there and we're going to react to by saying that's overrated or underrated and we may disagree and then we'll, we'll discuss. So Megan, why don't you throw your first one out and then I will throw my first one out.
2: Okay. So we're both West Coast people. Yes. So I'm hoping that you get this reference because you've also spent some time in Oregon. Yeah. Um, voodoo donuts overrated or underrated
1: oh boy this is going to offend people no matter what
2: i know it's why i chose this one
1: so yeah man god dang that's uh
2: (laughs) starting with a tough one right out of the gate so
1: i'm gonna go with overrated i mean they're donuts and and then they have clever designs but it's like is it oregon's not that boring of a place where voodoo donuts should be as big of a deal as it is.
2: Yeah, I'm going to agree with you on this one. Like, I think they're overrated. I don't personally like donuts. nothing th- against donuts. I, you know, people who love them, yay go you. Um, I'm just, I'm not a fried food person. But the fact that people will stand in line for three hours right. for a hunk of deep fried, dough. artificially colored dough right. is weird to me. Yeah, it's weird to me. And you know, if you visit Portland, you know, do whatever you want to do. Like, there's a ton
1: of stuff test. to do. But
2: there are also, like, even if we're just sticking with donuts, there are some really, really amazing local donut shops. Spread your donut love around. I think it's overrated.
1: Spread your donut love around. There you go. There
2: you go. <laughs> Equal get, opportunity donut get, time.
1: Get tested and then spread your donut love around.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Always donut responsibly. <laughs>
1: That's right. Uh, okay, so my first one tom cruise
2: oh geez i mean which tom cruise era are we speaking of all of them body of the the aggregate tom cruise the
1: aggregate tom cruise the meta tom cruise
2: i think i'm going to go with overrated for a similar reason to our our donut thing Mm. because people are just going to be who they are right like I never, like, I'm not a fan of the kind of movies that he used to do. Again, not a value judgment on those movies, like, just not my, just not my thing. Um, The whole, like, the reason why I asked which era is, like, the Tom Cruise of today is, like, the whole religious cult, is he a jerk, isn't he a jerk thing. And I sort of feel like, meh, there are far more interesting things to argue about or spend Uh, media space on so i think i think that people getting all in a tizzy about who tom cruise is behind the headlines is just an 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 overrated action
1: yeah 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 i'm 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 with the overrated too and i've i've enjoyed maybe half of his movies but like you could put almost any pretty face and that that can like contort themselves on a on a on a tight shot face shot and you know, a, a lot of it, he works with good directors, and you know, sure. um, Hollywood formula films. So, yep, yeah, say,
2: yeah. Um, this kind of an interchangeable thing. There were yeah. like so Tom Cruise himself, I right. think. Yeah, yeah right. there we go. Yeah. Okay, so okay. far we're like we're in agreement here. We're
1: in, yeah, this is uh, this is uncomfortable. So okay, well, just I'm wait. I'm just my
2: My choices get get like really less. Okay. But I mean, Uh, we
1: started with controversy and it ended up being, we ended up being on the same page. True,
2: true, 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 true.
1: Yeah, that is true. Okay. Um, Netflix. Ooh. Mm. Because I am such a Netflix consumer and man, holy, they do good stuff. I'm going to add a third category maybe and say appropriately rated, which may be a cop out. But I think Netflix is kind of the deal right now. I mean, it's it's yeah. we're still in that where it's relevant. Five years from now, it may not be quite as relevant. But mm-hmm. I'm in the middle of watching the the new season of Stranger Things.
3: Mm-hmm. And I'm just
1: like, you know, it's great. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's not the best thing on Netflix, but I I, I don't know. I think it's yeah. appropriately rated. What about you?
2: I'm going to go with underrated for mm. a couple of reasons. One is I think... One of the, and this this is talked about a little bit out in the out in the wider world. Um, I think one of the things that's happening with Netflix is it's making more people feel like it's possible to change the culture through the we're, we'll still call it the medium of television. Sure. Right. I feel like television as a medium was starting to get kind of prehistoric, dinosaur like, yes. um, wooden and and stiff, and I feel like. Netflix especially has, has started making it feel possible again. Um, yeah. This is, this is going to be a yeah. little bit of a Netflix love song. And then we'll, we'll link into why I think it's underrated personally. Instilling that hope that you can reach a lot of people and, and change things. I think it's a really important thing, especially during this time in our culture where everything mm-hmm. feels so dismal. Yes. Right? You look at Queer Eye. And how hopeful that is. And it's like, what good, beautiful content that is. Like, what happens when you just go in and you love somebody up and you encourage them? You don't sugarcoat things, you don't say that those torn sweatpants are just, you're rocking them. No, you go in and you go say like, that is not your best expression of your goodness. So let's help you like fine tune that. What happens is you turn people into these glossy little vibrant animals who are much better at relating to themselves and to the world. Like, Mm. who would have thought you could do Mm. that? like that sort of like the the hard hitting social impact stuff mm. i think that netflix is doing an amazing job both delivering that content and making people feel hopeful that content can change the world
1: that's that's an interesting twist yeah
2: yeah and then i think underrated for for me personally because i um maybe no surprise for people but i am a hard person to please with entertainment and i think that i personally underrate netflix because i See what's out of sort of out there and popular, and I try to watch it, and I'm like, I just I can't, I don't see this as funny. Like yeah. I don't find this entertaining. I also never find um, dramatized violence entertaining. So things like Orange Is the New Black, like that's never going to work for me mm. uh, because I can't I I can't engage in violence for entertainment's sake. But there is what often happens for me is I just turn off all of those platforms rather than dive more deeply and find things that would really serve me. So I think that I personally underrate it as well. There we go.
1: All right. My long okay.
2: miss of on Netflix.
1: That, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, good stuff, good stuff. So my next one. Uh potentially controversial.
2: Mm-hmm. The Beatles. I'm going to get hate mail on this one. Overrated.
1: Ooh.
2: Sorry, friends.
1: Ooh. I just saw the movie yesterday and before I saw the movie I would have agreed with you. Really? And I kind of think timing-wise I think maybe we're actually underrating the Beatles and their contribution. Cause they were pretty groundbreaking for their time. Uh-huh. And I mean, the part of the, the, what the movie questions is like, what would the world be like if uh-huh. we didn't have the music of the Beatles? So,
2: yeah. So I, I get that. And as with many things with me, like, I feel like there's a couple of layers here. Music wise. I have never been a Beatles fan. Okay. Ever. Okay. Um, so this is like when we say, when I say overrated, I'm like. What about is, the
3: Rolling yeah. Stones? You and and
2: well, Rolling hold on, Stones. let's finish with one controversy at a time here. All right, all right. Um, <laughs> The cultural contribution, absolutely. Like I've never sure. I've never been like, they didn't do anything. Of course yeah, they yeah. did. So did Got all it. this. So like Got this it. and this and this. So like yeah, as far yeah. as cultural impact, I feel like that's a different discussion. Okay. Mostly speaking, for me, they're overrated. That's legit.
3: Um, yeah. Are you
2: gonna throw in the Rolling Stones because, like, I am a product of the '70s and the '80s, so I kind of am contractually bound to say, "Yay, Rolling Stones!" Yeah, the I
1: love the Rolling Stones, um,
2: and it's and it's part of the soundtrack of
1: sure. that
2: that part of my life. But I mean, yeah. so are the Smiths, so are the Dead Kennedys. Like, there's there's a lot yeah. in there. Like, oh, yay.
1: you're Wait, ringing some bells. Ding,
2: seven yeah. Seconds, all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, Dead Milkman. Okay, we could go in memory lane here. Um, so Absolutely. so I'm gonna. I'm I'm going to go with overrated on the Beatles.
3: Okay. All right.
1: Sounds even, good.
2: Even if we talk about, you know, whatever. So Okay. Good. So I had a really, are we on my number three now?
1: Yeah, you were on your number three.
2: All right. I had a really hard time coming up with number three because, um, you know, this is a game, but this this stuff is important, right? <laughs> right. So, um, and I was trying like, you can't go with food again because you already did that. You can't go with pop culture because you already did that. This is the way my brain works. So I came up with international travel
1: under or uh, overrated friend? 100% underrated yeah 100% it's you 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 you've got to travel yeah. you've got to sit with people that are different than you eat food that you've never eaten before listen to music smell smells um and just but go don't be a dick when you do international travel yeah. go with an open heart and an open mind like you actually have a lot to learn mm-hmm. about the world but yeah it's the best thing in the world
2: it really is it's the best thing and i I, I, I agree with you. I feel like it's underrated and because I'm a complicated person, I also feel like it's overrated depending on how it's used, right? Well, and where you go and where you go. I mean, I feel like it, you know, you can, you can do international travel in sort of voodoo donut style yeah. where you go as a, as a tourist to fill up your Snapchat and you, you know, you're like, yes. you off your list and you did yes. it. Um, Which, you know, it's fine. Like sometimes there's really cool shit to go see in the world that you just like want to take a snapshot of and be like, yay, not dissing that in any way. But I feel like what you just described, like that, even though there are more people doing that and like going to, to, um, to acknowledge and explore other cultures. I love the acknowledge part, like not going in there as a Western person, being like gawking at the whatever, um, but going to, to acknowledge and to learn. Yeah. I still feel like that is in many ways under, underrated international travel is sometimes really difficult and it it can bring up a lot of stuff, um, beautiful stuff and difficult stuff. And, you know, certainly as a, as a white, well-educated, reasonably wealthy, and definitely privileged person uh, traveling to other communities that, um, that are different, right? Like international travel is hard because it makes, it makes me, it makes you look at the real scope of the world and how complex and beautiful and difficult it is. And I, as with most difficult, painful things, I think we underrate that hard knowledge. There's a tendency to romanticize in travel and in learning and all of these things. And I, I feel like the heart expanding, humbling aspects of Mm -hmm. international travel are Mm -hmm. deeply underrated.
3: Yep. That's
1: what it's about. Yeah, Heart, Heart expanding and humbling for sure. All right, my final one. do it It's like yours was awesome. yeah, I know you were conflicted <laughs> about that. mine is I
2: underrated like, my last one
1: mine mine sucks because I well, I've used it before, but it's it's kind of a thing. it's like one of my recurring things okay.
2: All right. uh, ready.
1: avocado toast
2: Oh jeez, how about this? I think that the the controversy around it is super overrated. Like, it's fucking toast.
1: No, no. Let's talk about the thing, Megan. That's what we're talking we about. Can, we can talk the about avocado the toast thing. itself.
2: We can talk about the thing, but you're we can't talk right about to the thing without talking about the more meta of the thing. You're, right. The the thing. you're, right.
1: Talking, you're right? right. I mean, it's like you know, right?
2: like, focus here. focus for a second. And why are we thinking no, about? Let people
1: say about, <laughs> people
2: about play. like you could afford a house. You're missing
1: the spirit of the game.
2: No, I am not. <laughs> the spirit of all games is you always bring them back to the total complexities of being alive because that is what being around me is all about. So, okay, yes. so the thing, the thing itself. Right. I think is underrated, to be honest. I think avocado toast itself is underrated because we get caught up in the whole like argument about whether it should be a thing, how much the thing should cost. When we're like, we are talking about sustenance that's actually pretty damn tasty sure unless it's done badly right Understood. like i how had, hard
1: is it to put avocado on a piece of toast
2: oh pumpkin have you ever had bad avocado toast because i have
1: i've had bad avocados i've had and bad, bad red
2: and put them together what do you have bad oh,
1: yeah toast. all right all right
2: right it is actually difficult i say that it's underrated because like one really there are more important things to bitch about and like take action on than yeah, but you're talking about it's...
1: the controversy, not the thing.
2: I the... know, I know they're related. And as, as a food vehicle itself, I still feel like it is underrated because like the marriage of a couple of things put together can sustain you for a whole day and be tasty.
3: Uh,
1: that I, little, yep. yeah, From a it. nutritional okay. perspective, I'm, I'm with you
2: uh-huh.
1: and simplicity is good. At simplicity the, is good returning like
2: to there's that. there's a lot of room for like the zen artistic minimalist thing with a good avocado sure. toast there's a place here in portland that makes fantastic avocado toast like you can raise simple ingredients to a really gorgeous aesthetic
3: a- absolutely
2: um and it's really tasty right like they make homemade ricotta they have really good bread and then homemade ricotta and then a very nicely ripe avocado with some lemon zest and pepper on top of it it's delicious
1: you know, you could have described any other food in such a beautiful and sensual way. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, oh, I'm feeling hungry. I don't feel hungry because I think avocado toast is overrated.
2: Okay. And <laughs> you, the beauty of this is that you get to think that. You right. get to know that in every five hundred years. It's, it's or a, a, it's a pluralist show. You, I will never make you eat avocado
1: toast. <laughs> no, no judgment. The truth is I enjoy avocado toast when, <gasps> I've,
3: when I've had it yeah
2: you see, and you were just you were just telling me not to like we're not rating the controversy, we're rating the factual no, myself, and you I, just went into controversy well, I like, could enjoy oh, like, something you know, and like,
1: think it's overrated right
2: okay, okay, good all right, good point I'll take that
1: so that that's that. that's where I'm at okay,
2: well, <laughs> all right got that it.
1: was that was really fun i I
2: love the fact
1: <laughs> I love the fact, Megan that we could talk about something so difficult. And we both—I mean, people can't see us—but we both shed tears during our Absolutely. conversation around grief at, at different points in our in our conversation. And then we were able to to shift. And, and one of the main reasons I'm glad you were willing to do this game is I believe that grief and joy are not enemies. Mm-hmm. Grief and joy are accomplices that help us attain a fuller humanity.
2: Yeah,
1: and, and a fuller realization of
2: self. They're not opposites and they're not replacements for each other. Right. 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 Um, I, I think we get confused and we think that uh, the opposite of grief is joy and that's not accurate. Exactly. And I think we also feel like if you can find some joy in your life, that means you're no longer grieving and that's wrong. We are human beings capable of, of holding a lot of different things at once, joy and grief being some of those things.
1: Absolutely. And I think yeah. many of us can relate to this where some of my most happy moments are when we're in the mo- midst of, of deep grief. You know, because a like lot of times, is all
3: for, all you're is with,
1: awesome. or you're with family and you reminisce, and there's this rich laughter amidst deep sorrow, and it's yeah. it's all together, it's all mixed in, like a good avocado toast,
2: like a good avocado toast.
1: It's all there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that will do it this week for us, friends. Uh, Megan, remind us how we can find you online.
2: RefugeInGrief dot com is the website and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at RefugeInGrief.
1: And you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter at Rev Raj Rambob. And as for Irenecast, Cast, don't forget to subscribe to the show and never miss an episode. We're available on all major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts and now Pandora. And while you're there, if your platform allows it, leave us a rating and or review. We're always looking for more and more ways to hear from you. And that's it for this week. This is Rajiv. Peace. Peace.